Hello and welcome to another exciting, and you know what I'm about to say, it's a jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers today. It's jam-packed with good stuff. I feel like I could do that as Lewis Black with the pointing finger. It's a jam-packed episode of, you know, anyway. Modern Day Philosophers is uh, the show you're listening to, by the way, and I'm Daniel Lobel, the host, and today on the show is one of the great comedians living in the world today, Tommy Tiernan. If you're not aware of who he is, I hope that this interview will open you up to many hours of wonderful, amazing stand-up comedy. I mean, just a really sweet, thought-provoking guy, and I am really fortunate that I got to talk to him. I've been trying to make this happen with him for years, and we did it at this past year's Edinburgh Festival Fringe recorded at the Gilded Balloon in a rehearsal room, and you know what? It's funny, because we open the interview and you hear me talking and telling uh, Tommy, first we tried to record it outside and it got windy, and then I tell him the story of uh, the Jackie Mason episode of this show, and you'll hear it in a minute if you haven't heard it, and how he insisted that there has to be ambient noise, there has to be ambient noise. Anyway, we got plenty ambient noise at the end of this interview when we're doing the quotes. Uh, there's like a group in the next room doing vocal warm-ups because it is the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and you have performers from all over the world doing all kinds of wacky stuff. And uh, they're doing some pretty funny-sounding vocal warm-ups in the background. And Logan Heftel, who does an amazing job editing the audio, took a look at it and told me it would be a pretty intense surgery. And I said, you know what? Forget it. It's ambient noise. It takes you there. It brings you to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. It's unbelievable for a person to hear something like this. Nobody gets an opportunity anymore. Anyway, okay, listen. Great show ahead. We talk about so much. And uh, if you're a Tommy Tiernan fan, I think that this will be a real special treat for you. And if you're not, uh, again, get into him. And it's a, it's a slower pace than probably you're used to with the show. It's a very low-key talk. He talks in a very soft-spoken Irish brogue. I, would you call it a brogue if it's not Scottish? I guess Irish people brogue. Do they brogue it? <laughs> this reminded me, when I first got to California, I used to have a commercial agent, and it was the Brogan Agency. Why is that interesting to you? Probably not. But maybe one person is like, I used to be with the Brogan Agency too, LaBelle, not bad. Okay, who was that guy? And what is going on in my head tonight? I don't know. This show, this show that you're listening to right now is brought to you by none other than BetterHelp. And you'll hear more about BetterHelp later in the episode uh, between the interview part and the philosophy part. But why keep you waiting any longer. I think we've all waited long enough. I certainly have. I waited years to get this interview, and uh, it didn't disappoint. What a great guy. Lovely guy. I'll say a lovely guy. And uh, I was talking to him about being about to have a kid. Now I have Sophie, and she's adorable, and she smiles, and she laughs, and uh, it's just great. I, you know, I feel very blessed. Thank God to have her. You know, it's, it's really great having this baby, probably lots of babies. I would say, go out and have babies. Or just hang out with babies. Wait, maybe that's not good advice. Don't just hang out with babies. That would be weird. Hey, what are you doing? I ain't this podcast that I listen to. All right. Without further ado, except, of course, for the intro song, 
my talk with the wonderful, terrific comedian, Tommy Tiernan. Enjoy. When Daniel LaBelle was in school, he didn't pay any attention. He's older and wiser, he's learning philosophy with his comedian hench people. Each of whom is a wonderful sage in their own right as well. It's modern day philosophers. And now here's Daniel LaBelle. That's good. Alright, that's good. We're rolling. Okay. We should just make this the beginning of the show. Part of the sound goes smoothly from the sound check. I'm sitting with one of the, one of the great comedians that I've ever gotten to um, share a share a bill with, I guess. Uh, but but one of the great comedians in general, uh, Tommy Tiernan. How are you? I'm great, Danny. I'm good. It's a good good place to be talking outdoor in the fresh air, and yeah. it's a good time of the day. Yeah. 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when we met? I, I wouldn't blame you if you don't. No, I don't. Was it? Uh, it was at Stand Up New York. Oh my goodness! And I think you were preparing for a TV set. Yeah, with Eddie Brill for Letterman, maybe. Yeah. Wow. Years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I wasn't aware of you, embarrassingly enough. I mean, we don't know what goes on in the rest of the world in yeah. America. And then I just saw this guy, and to me, you were there was no. A layer of fame or anything about it. Yeah. Just this. Uh, I just saw a middle-aged Irish guy go up there and just be hilarious. And I said, "Oh my God, this guy's fantastic!" And somebody said, "Oh, that's Tommy Tiernan. Of course, he's fantastic." And Funny, you know, there. Even though there might be an awareness of uh, European stand-up in the states, there's still a great diversity in American stand-up. If you know, it's still a thrill f- for me to go digging now all my digging has to be online either via Spotify or one of these kind of platforms yeah um, but there's great stuff out there as, as diverse as you could hope to hear you know recently now I've been uh, and it's funny for someone so to be just getting into someone who's so established but Jim Gaffigan uh-huh. you know and I go online and there's like eight albums there I can go through and I love them well, that was my experience with you. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, uh, once I started digging around, I was like, "Oh man, this is fantastic!" And uh, it but odd yeah. voices as well in the states. You know, odd like Rory Scovel or I'm a big Doug Stanhope fan, mm-hmm. Maria Bamford. You know, just kind of unusual, off kilter voices. Right. Um, and I wonder. I mean, I know Edinburgh is awash with the unusual. A lot of the stand-up here, I'm not sure how much of it is club-based. A lot of it seems kind of theatrical in tone, you know, or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And I haven't been anywhere near the London clubs in such a long time. But it's always always a thrill to kind of... Sorry to interrupt. We're getting so much wind now that it's like, it won't be listenable. Okay, we'll go inside. We'll go inside, yeah. We're back. Do you want to start again? We can pick it up and uh, (laughs) explain it. We were outside, it got a little windy. My best uh, one of these, when it comes to, um, to the noise. You want to hear a quick story? Yeah. I did one of these with uh, Jackie Mason. Wow. And I used to work with him. Wow. I used to sell his merchandise. It was like one of my first jobs. Really? Yeah. And uh, God. so I sold his merch on Broadway. And we, we were friends for years. And I moved to Los Angeles, we kind of lost touch, yeah. and then we did one of these and we caught up and it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. So I went to his apartment. Yeah. And he's an old guy now. Yeah, of course. He, so he, 
like most old people, you want someone to take them out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, Jack, it's perfect in here. The noise is perfect. It's yeah, so yeah. quiet. He goes, I don't care about quiet. He says, in fact, you should, be, you should think about the fact that people who listen to a show, they don't care to hear quiet. They like ambient noise. I said, well, what, why would they want ambient noise? <laughs> he goes, because it creates an atmosphere, an experience for people. Yeah. If, if, if they just hear us talking, it's unnatural like this. But if they hear us in a diner in New York with things clanking around, it's like, it's like getting to go out with Danny LaBelle and Jackie Mason. It's much better. I go, I, I don't buy it, but okay, fine. Yeah. I knew there was no, he gets stubborn, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So I said, fine, let's find a quiet place. Yeah. So we leave his apartment, and he takes me to the loudest restaurant in New York. How about this? I said, I'm not going to hear anything here. He yeah, goes, yeah. all right, fine. I told you we'll find something you're happy with. So we walked to another place. I said, how about this? He goes, I have a real problem with the owner. So <laughs> he goes, little, I don't go back in there. I know another place. It's perfect. So we go to an, a third place. And yeah. this place is boarded up. It's obviously been closed down for ages. He goes, it was open yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> now it starts pouring rain. Yeah. And we're walking, you know, midtown near Carnegie Hall. Yeah. It's congested. People are letting out from work. Umbrellas everywhere. It's like, I think of it as like that scene in The Lion King, you know, like with the stampede coming yeah, yeah. and Jackie. I'm like, Jackie! He's <laughs> like disappearing, a little ma old man and all these umbrellas. Yeah. And then he's like, quick, come here! And I, I ran and he, he, he's let's get a cab. I know another place the other side of town. So we go to this other place, this diner. Yeah. And it is good. It's quiet. They turn the music down for us. He goes, what did I tell you? I found the best place. The best place. So I said, okay. So we start doing the interview. And the diner starts getting full and it starts getting louder. And Jackie's a very proud guy, so he'll never admit he was wrong. Yeah. So what he did is he started getting louder to combat the loudness. And halfway through the interview, he lost his voice. <laughs> wow. And that was it. I'm like, all right, here's the philosopher. He said, I can't talk anymore. All right, that's it. I'm done. A genius, Jackie. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. It's funny, there's so many... Um, Historically, like I'd listened to a lot of the older American stand-ups. Like our first first guy I got into was Lenny Bruce, and then from Lenny Bruce, even though I didn't understand any of the references, then you you know you make a hop to Dick Gregory mm -hmm. or um, Mort Sal and Jackie Mason, and they're just so good. These guys, yeah, you know, they're so um, it's a thrill. Like last night, uh, I was listening to a Jonathan Winters album. Oh. I love them. It's just, um, I feel lucky that we have these, because uh, I, I try and watch some stand-up on Netflix, but I, I much prefer it as a spoken word thing rather than a visual thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just so great that we have all these perfectly recorded gigs from the 60s uh, and 70s. It's uh, um, No, I love it. I love doing that. So you say you like it better as a spoken word thing. Does that mean, would that translate into you're much more into the writing than the performance, I would imagine? Uh, no, I just think it's, um, it's an easier product to consume. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a huge interest in podcasts right now. If these were TV shows, I'm not sure people were, would be watching them. Mm, you know, so there's something about the audio that's just, it's not as invasive. It's more intimate, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Recently now I've been getting into, you know, Lawanda Page. Lawanda was this uh, I don't know her black, uh, filthy, 
American act from the 60s. And you're going, this is just so scandalously <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> um, no, it's great. Uh, so when you listen to Jonathan Winters, because mm. um, I listen to Jonathan sometimes in the car, yeah. and there's always like this little part of me that's like, maybe I could absorb some of this genius. Yeah, Did, yeah, yeah. Do you get any little things? Totally. I mean, the, what prompted me was um, in a place like Edinburgh now, I'd spend a lot of time walking around on my own. And what I've noticed I start doing it is that I, I'm walking around putting on these funny little voices. Mm-hmm. And then I, I try and I say the voice out loud as I'm walking around and I'm trying to figure out who it is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, is there a celebrity? That's, so I was thinking, wow. And I'm doing all these different situations. And I said, Jesus, could I work like that? Could I be as relaxed as that mm-hmm. on stage? Uh, so last night I had a few drinks last night and I was walking home and I was doing all these voices and I was thinking geez I could try that and then I so as a way of inspiration I said I'll download a few Jonathan Winters albums and yeah. see what it's like you know? <laughs> it, se- it, it seems so free I'm sure there was a structure to it um, but it does seem free you know and fun I met him once too wow he was unbelievable that's a crazy story yeah tell it to Did me you want to please hear? please it's literally crazy. I was I moved to LA. I was totally lost. And and one thing I always wanted to do was to meet Jonathan Winters. I'd actually tried to meet him many times yeah. because he was a hero of mine. And one day my wife and I am said, "You know, every morning we wake up not too far from Jonathan Winters. And I can't meet the guy. Every every contact I had who said they'd set me up with a meeting, yeah. sorry, you know, he's too old or this or that." I said, what if we just go to Santa Barbara and we find him and I meet him? Basically to stalk Jonathan yeah, yeah. So she agreed. She said, okay, we'll go for a weekend to Santa Barbara. I'll give you a weekend to try this madness yeah. and we'll see how it goes. So we're, uh, we, we went to Santa Barbara and I said, okay, let's just walk around town. People must know him. And uh, I went in one place and I said, do you know any, you don't happen to know the comedian Jonathan Winters. He lives here. And somebody said, well, they might know him in the antique shop. I see him in there sometimes. Yeah. I said, okay, cool. So we go to the antique shop. And how old would he have been at this stage? This is six years ago. Okay, wow. So not too long ago. So we went to this antique shop. And, uh, and I said, hi, do uh, you guys know Jonathan Winters? I hear he comes in here a lot. And they said, uh, we don't know names, buddy. We don't know names. We only know faces. I said, okay. I went on my iPhone. I pulled up Jonathan <laughs> Winters. I said, you know this guy? And the guy looks at it, and he calls the other guy over. He goes, look at this. He goes, this guy's nuts. (laughs) He says, let me tell you something about this guy. What is he? I I said, he's a comedian. He says, I knew it. And he other. he's a comedian. Yeah, that makes sense. He goes, he comes in here one time dressed up as a plumber, and he insists he's a plumber. Oh, my gosh. Then he comes in another time dressed up as a firefighter. We said, what the hell is this old guy? He's nuts. Yeah. He says, then he starts prank calling us. Yeah. <laughs> Asking for stuff that we don't have. I said, what the hell's wrong with this guy? He goes, that makes sense. He's a comedian. Yeah. I said, uh, I said so, you, so you don't know him then, I guess. He goes, we ship something to him. What's his name? I'll look it up in the computer. Yeah. I said, okay. I, I said, you know, Jonathan Winters. He puts it in. He goes, I can't give you his address, but I could tell you that the part of Santa Barbara he lives in. He lives in Montesino. So uh, I said, great, thanks. I said, we got a lead. Let's go to Montesino. 
see what happens. We were like on an adventure. Yeah. So we get there. I think it's called Montesino. And, and I see this guy, an old guy tinkering with an antique car. <sighs> and I said, well, antiques, Jonathan Winters, let me ask him. I said, you know Jonathan Winters? And the guy goes, I don't know him personally, but he often hangs out playing uh, checkers or backgammon, I forget which one, yeah. at the coffee shop La Fontaine down the block. So this is amazing. I felt like Tintin, you know? So we, <laughs> we went to, uh, to La Fontaine, and I said, uh, do you guys know Jonathan Winters? And they said, do you have a picture? I showed them the iPhone. They go, yeah. he comes in in the morning, not our shift. And, I, and my wife said, all right, this is enough of this. Let's get out of here. Let's just have a weekend in Santa Barbara. You're, you're, you're losing your mind. Yeah. I said, all right, fine. And then I decided to throw a Hail Mary. As I'm leaving, I just turned around and I said, just out of curiosity, everybody's having their coffee. Does anyone here know Jonathan Winters? And people look up for a second and then they go back to what they're doing. I said, all right, fine. You're right. I've, yeah. gone, I've gone too far. We go to the car and somebody comes up to me as I'm getting in the car and says, I heard you in the coffee shop. Jonathan's my neighbor. And um, why do you want to know him? I said, well, I'm a comedian and I've always looked up to him since yeah. I was young and I just thought, you know, if there was a chance to meet him, I'd love to meet him. She said, well, he's very old and he's sick and he barely leaves the house. Right. And I don't think he's in any condition to meet anybody. Mm -hmm. But it would mean the world to him that someone cares about him that much mm -hmm. that, that they did that. I said, all right, thanks. And she said, you know, it's sad because he's very into antiques. Mm. I said, yeah, I heard. She goes, and that we have once a year in Santa Barbara the big antique convention in the convention center. And that's this weekend. And if he was ever anywhere, he would have been there. And he's always there for the opening, which was yesterday or this morning. It was, it was over anyway, she said. So that would have, if he would have left the house, which I think he's too sick to do, mm -hmm. that's where he would have been. I said, okay, cool. Well, thank you. And send him my love if you see. Yeah, yeah. So we have a nice weekend in Santa Barbara. And as we're leaving, we pass this convention center where the antiques are. And I said, hey, let's check it out. So we go in there. And as we're going in, we pay the 12 bucks to go in. The woman says, you'll never believe who just came in here. Jonathan Winters. I said, when? She said, a minute ago. He's right over there. And she points, and there's Jonathan Winters being pushed around in a wheelchair. I said, wow, that's amazing. And then the other woman said, she, he's usually here for the opening, but he was too sick this year. Yeah. And then we didn't think we, he'd make it in. And then he just came in. It was like this amazing miracle. And I went up and I talked to him and wow. we started doing voices together. It was like anything you could ever wow. hope for, you know. He, started, he went into a character. I started doing characters. He's like, oh, you do characters? That's great. That's great. I said, yeah, I'm a comedian. I've always looked up to you. And, uh, and, and he says, that's wonderful. Uh, he says, you wanna, let's get a picture together. So we got a picture together. Wow. And, and, uh, and he said, he even said, here, let's stay in touch. But anyway, so, so uh, I said, um, I said, can I get some advice? I felt like this was yeah. like this all had to be for something. I was so lost in my life. I yeah, yeah. thought maybe he could point me in direction. He looks at me. And he looks over at my wife. And he leans into me like like it's like something big. He goes, "On your way home tonight, buy her a burger." <laughs> <laughs> And that was it. And then we left. And then, like, a week, two weeks later, maybe, he died. Wow. That was it. My that, that was my big advice from Jonathan. Did, and did you? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's a beautiful story. Wow. So, 
Who who were some of the comedians that you met that were just it was just thrilling for you to meet? Um, I'm not sure if I've ever had that experience. Really, I bumped into Jackie Mason once in New York. Mm-hmm. He was walking past, uh, and I, Seth and a, another comedian just ran from our tables to say hello, and he just kept saying, "I'm a millionaire. I'm a millionaire." <laughs> Uh, you should come to my show. I'm a millionaire. Um, <laughs> uh, I met Billy Connolly, but I, I can't think of anybody who. Um, I mean, I went to see Bill Burr recently, and I was struck by the quality of the stand-up. You know, so I, I guess. Yeah. You know, I did a gig with M- Mitch Hedberg. Um, I got to tour with Greg Proops. So it's more people like that. It's more people who are working the same time as me that I get sustenance from, you know. Right. Um, David O'Doherty, an Irish guy. I love the word sustenance being used in that sense. Well, you know what I mean? It kind of yeah, yeah. keeps you going, you know, yeah. um, and inspires you. And so in terms of older comics, I don't really like comics from the previous generation I don't I don't really I've never had any of those encounters yeah I thought you know I, I don't know why I've always been drawn to that I mean I always mm. wanted to meet these guys before it was too late yeah and I got to meet a lot of them which was cool wow. but uh yeah something about it to me was it, it was like almost like you know they were like treasures you know totally hidden in the world and um so good memories too I'd say you know yeah yeah so I want to hear a little bit about about your life, about growing up, and uh, I, I don't know too much about mm. it. I even looked online, and there wasn't much. But yeah, uh, but uh, what was your family life growing up? So uh, I would have been born in the very north of Ireland, uh, a kind of remote, wild, windy outpost. I lived there until I was three, and then. We moved to Africa. I lived in Africa for three years. What part? Zambia. Well, uh, why did your family move to Africa? No idea. My dad got a job out there, so we just went. Um, what kind of work did he do? To stuff with farmers. I don't know what he did, really. Really? Yeah. There was some kind of um, covenant between <laughs> the Irish and the Zambian government. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what. The Irish got in exchange. Um, so how old were you when you went? Three. Three. So I lived in Africa from the age of three to the age of six. Do you remember anything from that time? Not really. I remember the heat. And I remember the... Um, anytime I see Southern Africa on television, I get sense memories, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember too much of it. Then I, we moved to London. I was there for a while. Uh, and then a few different towns in Ireland. And I lived in a particular town called Navan for about 10 years. At the age of 16 or 17, then I was sent to a boarding school for two years. Do you have any siblings? I have three younger siblings. But I think what I got, what I got used to as a young child uh, was being the outsider. Yeah. Um, and I think that so at the age of 16, when I was you know, really kind of putting roots down in a town, to be then sent to a boarding school everything got turned upside down again. So that was almost the, the umbilical cord to place was, was cut, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I don't feel as if I'm from anywhere in particular. And I'm, you know, I'm, I know from reading a lot of American stuff that a lot of, a lot of American people have that experience of just following their dad wherever he worked, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, can't, I feel as if I'm from the whole country. Were you close with your dad? Not really, not close with either of them, really. Um, my mother uh, committed suicide uh, 10 years ago. And sometimes with, with suicide, it's kind of like, my experience of it was that it's not, uh, sometimes the, the, the act of departure is, it's, it's not abrupt. And it's not a sudden shock because these people have been distancing themselves from everybody around them mm. for maybe 30 years. You know, that some people are, my mother anyway, it was a kind of a, it was a, a process of withdrawal from the moment I was born. You know, and my brothers and sisters would feel the same thing. Just, she's never really there, you know. So wow. her suicide was, it's a, uh, it's awful to contemplate the state of mind that she was in. And um, I remember when I was talking to a friend of hers, so my mother was, was, became dependent on a lot of drink and drugs. And this woman said that my mother had t- said to her that what she wanted was oblivion, you know. So um, I guess that uh, and I think my dad was under a fierce amount of pressure trying to cope with this, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think those uh, those ingredients, the kind of the, uh, very much loving mm-hmm. my parents, um, but just to from a the, distance, the, the disconnect there, and also the kind of the traveling around. So there was no real roots put down with friends. Mm-hmm. I think that all that contributed to, to you know the first time I ever stood up on a stand-up comedy stage and the adrenaline of the laughter and from a very early age using laughter as a way of saying hello to people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was just, I said, I just felt like I was in the right place. I felt as if, I've always felt more at home on stage than off stage. Right. It's a home for the homeless. Almost. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and it, um, so you t- take those ingredients and then you also kind of factor in a love of language and a desire to express and a desire to create and a philosophical thing about laughter and freedom. And What is the philosophical thing about laughter and freedom? It's an instinct that, there's m- that reality can never be defined and that presents as reality is only one version of things and laughter is a way to experience for a moment other versions of things yeah i love Um, that that's very poetic so and it can be stupid you know harold lloyd laurel and hardy stuff Mm -hmm. you know it can be Mitch Hedberg stuff. It can be Doug Stanhope stuff. Every time somebody speaks, they're presenting the world in 
a light that you either find attractive or entertaining or repulsive and sad. <laughs> it, uh, um, so I, I, I love the art form, you know, and that's why it's such a thrill for me to um, go digging online. I, yeah. I used to, before it all went online, I hundreds of comedy CDs, you know, um, but I love it. I, I, I love the solo voice. I love lying in bed at night after drinking whiskey and just, <laughs> you know, pressing play. And all of a sudden, you're listening to Woody Allen in a nightclub in Chicago yeah. in 1966. And you're there. This is beautiful. This yeah. is beautiful. Especially that album just you know, transports you there. It's amazing. Fantastic. You know, yeah. uh, so I love it. Something about the, the ambient noise. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it, it is. But if you, I, I listen to... Um, uh, jazz albums as well. So, you, I mean, so I, just in terms of cultural landmarks, so I would have gone from, say, Bob Dylan into Ginsburg, from Ginsburg into jazz, from jazz into Lenny Bruce, you know, so all these guys, mm -hmm. so called 60s countercultures, all kind of connected. Right. Um, and so. One of my thrills is, you know, you, you might listen to, say, a Miles Davis live album uh, recorded in New York, 1962, and you're hearing musicians at the... that they've taken it beyond classical. Mm. Like people say that classical was the most skillful, uh, most demanding musical art form. Yeah. And suddenly these jazz guys come along and they're, you know... They're playing classical at 45 times the speed the classical was written. <laughs> <laughs> and they're inventing on the spot. Yeah. So you get these guys who are thoroughbreds, genius, and they finish a track. <laughs> <laughs> and you're thinking, how many people are listening? There's like four people in the club. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, and what's really interesting as well is um, <laughs> there's an American poet called Billy Collins uh, who's really, really very funny and has some wonderful comic notions. But he, he, he has a poem that's about... Um, he's listened to a Miles uh, Davis album and uh, there's some guy who's kind of persistently clearing his throat. <laughs> and it's on, it's on the LP, like... <laughs> And he's wondering what became of him. You know, yeah. became of <laughs> but you can listen to stand-up albums from the 60s with the same thing. You yeah. know? And there's always one guy with a whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> the particular laugh. Right. Think, what, what happened to him? Or it's always, you know, it always sounds like there's a pretty girl laughing. Yeah. You know? well, I wonder what happened to her. So, no, I, I love it. I wonder if they ever listened to the album. They go, that's me. That's me. I'm on the new album. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to hear more about the boarding school. Mm. Where was it? Was it in Ireland? So it was in Ireland, yeah. It was, um, I was delighted to go there because uh, things at home were kind of... Um, you, so you adapt to whatever environment you grow up in and to you it's entirely normal. But you can still... Uh, you still notice instincts. So my instinct was to get out of the house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and maybe other kids had the instincts to go home mm -hmm. but I was always you know out the door and for away away for as long as I possibly could um, 
So boarding school for me was a thrill. The independence of it. I'd go for six weeks mm-hmm. and then go home for a weekend and then back for six weeks. And I loved it. I, I'm not an academic person, but I'm clever. I have a particular type of clever, cleverness. It's not a, a book cleverness. It's mm-hmm. not an academic cleverness. Uh, so I found school quite difficult in the sense because people, teachers were able to say, oh, that guy's smart. How come he's failing all his exams? Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure from teachers coming on me. But looking back on it, I think it was a, it introduced me to the west of Ireland and the west is very different from the east. Like in terms of the states, I don't know what you compare to, but the, historically the west was poor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a, if you can imagine a very, very cold New Mexico. <laughs> Uh, not a lot of money um, and but I was very attracted to that kind of stark landscape it's a practically a treeless landscape wind is always blown there aren't very many hedges mm-hmm. the, the fields are small they're bordered by stone and I loved it and I I think it was just one of those experiences as well that kind of set me on the road to independence. So kind of, okay, I'm 16, I'm not at home. I'm not with the guys that I was friends with since I was seven. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was an escape, yeah? An escape, but also a kind of a challenge, you know? It's kind of like you've been released from prison and you kind of go, okay, well, what now? I'm not on parole. I right. can do whatever I want. And so when I finished my schooling, aged 18, I just... My parents let me do whatever I wanted to do. There was no pressure. I was unemployed until I was 26. I lived in a town on the west coast of Ireland called Galway, which had a huge student population, a huge unemployed population, and a huge kind of artistic population. So you had these three groups of people all in and around the same age who had an economy of scarcity. We all lived on very little. You know, I was getting maybe 30 pounds a week from the dole, the, the unemployment benefit. Mm-hmm. But I was amongst thousands of people who were doing the same thing and we had complete freedom. It wasn't a very druggy scene. Uh, it was a lot of drink going on, but you, know, you could only afford to have a few pints once a week. Mm-hmm. But it was freedom, complete and utter freedom. And I think that I, there was no pressure on me to go to university. There was no pressure on me to get a job. And I think the six, between six and eight years that I did that for, I, I loved it. You know, I was, I was listening to a bit of uh, Patton Oswald, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, he talked about being in San Francisco for a few years and the, you know, the freedom of it. And I, I had the same where I was living and, I kind of, you know, it was a, it was kind of like, if you leave people alone, they sort themselves out. Yeah. You know, they don't need pressure, you know. So that, that I, I feel that that's, that, uh, now, it's real easy to impose a narrative on your life because, and narratives are always much easier than the truth. Yeah. So that's the narrative that I've imposed <laughs> on my life. 
<laughs> Independence. So, so what's the truth? <laughs> but the truth, you know, Bob Dylan says, reality always yeah. has too many heads. Right, right. So it's impossible to define the truth. It brings but, us back to what you were saying about stand-up. I was thinking about uh, just yesterday about how every, you know, nothing is funny unless something goes wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Comedy never comes out of things going right. But comedians only come out of things going wrong. So it works on the micro and the macro level. Right, yeah, sure. Like, like without things going wrong, no comedy. But is there, is there anybody that you can look at and say that things haven't gone wrong? I mean... I guess that there's got to be uh, some barometer of wrongness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if it goes a certain amount of wrong, you know, you might not be the doctor, you might be the nurse, you know, <laughs> Because at a certain level of wrong, you're, you're out there. You yeah, know. but you'd be overwhelmed with wrongness and end up in prison. <laughs> so there's yeah, a kind right, of, right, you know. Yeah. I think the initial fault is conception, I think, from... from <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the horror that none of us recover from. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also such a... Um, of course, it, I was reading an interview with Billy Connolly recently... And he talked about how the loneliness of stand-up, you know, and how profoundly alone that he has felt doing stand-up for a living. So it does attract dysfunctional people. But then again, you know, I think gynecology attracts dysfunctional people. You know, I th- the police force attracts dysfunctional people. I yeah. think we all just, di- you know, dysfunctional is the norm. I remember trying to make a joke work many years ago about, like, what's the right amount of beatings to give a kid to turn them into an artistic genius? Like, too many. It's kind of like what you were saying about yeah. too many, and you've created a criminal. Not enough, and it's just a loser. But if you hit that exact right amount, you might yeah. just have an artistic genius. But the thing about that is uh, yeah. you don't warp your children by mm-hmm. beating them. You, <laughs> you warp them by trying your best. <laughs> 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 you know, it's, uh, it's our efforts <laughs> yeah. that destroy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's our notion of good parenting. It's our inability to be perfect parents right. that shape our children. Right. It's not through... Um, it's not... No one's trying to... They're suck, not, right? No, they're not willfully trying to destroy you. They're doing their best, but you just <laughs> Yeah. You're just you just you're just misshapen. Do you have kids? I have six children. Wow, six kids. Wow. Mm, so and they're all very different, you know. Um my oldest boy is twenty six. He has great wildness in him. Uh he is a hard worker, physical hard worker. He's funny in a very kind of silly way. Um my, and he's not very good with money, okay? Mm-hmm. My next boy is 20. Reminds me a lot of what I imagine Bob Dylan to be like. He is uh, phenomenally talented, phenomenally sure of his own genius, uh, gifted kid, but has a kind of a, an inner strength or something that, I didn't give him. He didn't get it from me or his mum, I don't think. He's just who he is, you know. Uh, he's amazing with money. He, he, he could work in a coffee shop for a week 
and you know, six months later, still have the money. He's wow. just amazing. So you know, I have a 17-year-old daughter, I have a 12-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old son, and a seven-year-old son, and they're all. I was uh, reading this book yesterday by a guy called Jean Vanier, and he was a Canadian who set it up this thing called L'Arche, L-A-R-C-H-E, which is a Christian community um, and they live with people with profound disability. And so they take these people that are unwanted or could end up in institutions and they live with them and that's all they do. So you've people with cerebral palsy, people with, you know, maybe Down syndrome, just profoundly disabled people and mm-hmm. they live together in community you know and I think that's what what they do is they they accept whoever's in the house yeah and they just try and live together and I have I I kind of thought to myself I'd love to live in that type of environment and I thought about it and I said well, hang on a minute it's like aren't all families <laughs> <laughs> profoundly disabled <laughs> like isn't that what family life is? <laughs> like, it's funny that you're like, maybe I can, you're living with your family, you're like, eh, this is a little too normal for me. <laughs> maybe, maybe if I went. But I think, it's the, it's the, yeah. I thought about it, I said, no, I think yeah. my, I, I know I am, mm-hmm. I wouldn't dare suggest that my wife or my children are, but I know for sure that it's a possibility yeah. that we're all profoundly emotionally disabled. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so us learning to live together yeah. is, no. That's our community. I wonder if the uh, yeah. the disabled people in the house feel like they're the ones doing the charity for the other people. <laughs> well, the the, the yeah. people who go and live with them would talk about how when you're in the company of people who can't succeed in the ways that society has suggested we should try and succeed. Uh huh. A remarkable freedom takes place. You stop trying. Yeah. You stop trying to compete on those levels that drive everybody insane. And uh, that can be. It's like it's like hanging out with a baby. Yeah. You yeah. know, you don't have to try. You just. It, they, it's wonderful. You know. It's really funny. My friend in L.A. Um, got a job taking around a um, a Down syndrome guy mm. in his thirties, and that that's the job. It, it's a pretty good job for comedians, you know, because it, during the day you're not doing anything, so now you're not doing anything with a sidekick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they come over to the house, and this guy with Down syndrome, he only talks in whisper. Right. That's one of the things, but he only talks like this. And my friend goes to the bathroom, and the guy, the Down syndrome guy leans in, he goes, you got to get me away from this guy. He's a freaking loser. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> he called my friend a loser. My friend here in the toilet flush, he comes out, he's like, hey, how are you? Yeah. He looks at me, he's a loser. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Great. Oh, so great. So, <laughs> oh man, uh, I'm about to be a dad. Wow. First one. Wow. When I get back from Fringe. That's great. A month later, we're supposed yeah. to. So, I guess, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, this is an answerable question, mm. but, but any advice on that? Um, any advice? I, you know, I've made so many mistakes with my kids. 
And what's profound is how they forgive you, not consciously, you know, but they forgive you by their presence up until a certain age. <laughs> so, uh, and I wouldn't dare give advice. Um, my oldest boy is about to have his first child. Um, Congrats. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And uh, I'm very excited about having a baby around the place again. And I remember saying to him when he told me that his girlfriend was pregnant, I said, like I, when he was conceived, um, myself and his mother weren't really together. I was unemployed. I think she was unemployed as well. We had no money. Um, I just said to him, you'll never regret having a baby. You'll never. It, there's no such thing as the wrong time. It, a baby is bigger than any situation. Now, that's a very anti-corporate way of looking at it. That's a very anti-ambition and anti-success way of looking at things. But there's a bigger truth when a baby arrives than success or ambition. You know, it's, it's incredible. So, no, it, it's a... I'm excited for you. It's, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. It really yeah. is wonderful. I was terrified to do it for many years. You know, my wife every year for, for a while, she kept saying, we're going to do it. I go, next year. Yeah. And she's so patient. She, a year later, she says, all right. I said, yeah. I'm not ready yet. And you'll never and, be ready. And I, well, I finally got to the point where at least I was ready enough, you know, yeah, yeah. and I said, okay. And it was, um, we went to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade this past year. Mm. And we met up with a friend of mine, and uh, she and I went to high school together, and she has a baby now. And the baby's at the parade. And uh, I thought, hey, I love being a kid at the parade, and I'd love to take a kid to the parade. Yeah. And in that moment, I was like, I feel ready. Okay, wow. You know, but I've always been terrified. I don't, I don't have much money, and I, mm. you know, I thought maybe if the career takes off there, maybe then I should do it or something like that. But and then it's comforting to hear when you say that. Uh, I've never been ready for any of my children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time yeah. my partner's told me that she's pregnant, I've gone, <laughs> what? <laughs> I've never been ready, man. <laughs> you know? Wow. And you haven't been ready six times. That's six times. That's pretty impressive. That, that's a lot of time to be unprepared. And, and then the other thing that makes me feel comfortable is what you said, and, and I've heard a few people say, like, oh, having a baby in the house. Because in, in my head, it was like, ah, having a baby in the house. But then when you hear from people who've had it, mm. it sounds like a pretty fun thing. Oh, it's lovely. It's, yeah. just, it's a lovely presence. Now, it's phenomenally challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a beautiful, uh, uh, a beautiful... Uh, a different kind of awareness comes into your life. A different... It, it is totally that thing of, of... of... opening yourself up to... a kind of gorgeous helplessness. Mm -hmm. You know? And how... it's not about success, it's not about how much money you have. It's just this gorgeous, small thing in your house, you know? When we were... Um, I'm not championing poverty, but I'm just saying that when, and maybe the, the, the welfare system in the States is not as generous as the Irish one, 
Um, so when my oldest boy is called Dylan, and when he was born, we the state bought us a, a push chair uh, wow. and a cot, I think, and we just managed to get the money from the we we moved house. Uh, our landlord kicked us out, um, and we moved house from one place to another. There's about the place down the road is about 500 yards away. Uh, we stole a shopping trolley, hmm. and we moved. We spent a whole day just walking <laughs> back and forth with our stuff in a shopping trolley, and it was great. It was no. I had no sense. Now I know that my sense of America is that. There's a lot more pressure on people to achieve, you know, and that's just, uh, that is probably, I don't know, a, probably a hangover from the way white settlers arrived. So white settlers arrived and we says, okay, we have to do something in order to make this habitable for us. We're mm-hmm. going to kill those guys, first of all. <laughs> um, and that kind of... Uh, mantra of hard work and achievement is kind of built into the American DNA. We don't have that in Ireland. So in Ireland, we were a peasant culture where other people were in charge. Mm-hmm. And no matter how hard we worked, they got all the money. So we were a colony, an English colony for 800 years. And that, I think, just makes us a bit more defeated in a beautiful way. Yeah, interesting. You know? There's no Irish dream like the American dream. No, but we're phenomenal fantasists. Uh So my notion is that when when you're a peasant, there are two ways of coping. Uh One is through miserable realism, which is the way the Eastern Europeans and the Russians went. And the other is a kind of escapist fantasy, which is the way the Irish went. So our way of escaping and fantasizing uh, was through drink, storytelling, and laughter. Uh Um, now the underbelly of that is sadness alcoholism and dysfunction (laughs) so you know no um, no no culture is ever entirely definable or it contains both light and shade Um, but that would seem to me the way the Irish went is kind of okay this particular reality sucks let's invent other ones Right, you know, to yeah. try and live in. Whereas the Russian one is very, and the, the Russians are great storytellers as well. But there really is. I remember I did a show in Moscow a few years ago, and I was walking around with this guy who's an Irish man who's living over there, and I was saying, "People don't smile in the street," and they say, "No, they think you're stupid if you smile." You know, wow. they think it's a sign of weakness. But they also then would. Uh, they would carry a lot of shame in Russia. So if you have a uh, mentally ill or a physically disabled child, mm-hmm. that child was kept behind doors. Yeah. You know, huh. locked away in the wow. in the apartment, never outside. So, you know. But he also said that Russian women are very sentimental and loving. So there's no... <laughs> just when you think you've got a culture pinned down and defined, yeah. it surprises you. Right, right. You know. So for all my stuff about oh, America's this or America's that. Yeah, yeah. It is and it isn't. Yeah. You know, there's always surprising voices, you know. And for me, the thrill is discovering new stand-ups, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so I would, 
say a kind of straight down the middle, if that's not the right phrase, of John, was it Mulraney? Mulaney. Mulaney. So John is very kind of, um, it's, you'd be tempted to call it mainstream stand-up, but it's still brilliant. It's funny, like, it's, but it's very, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a clean-cut stand-up. Commercial. Yeah, and, yeah. but he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, he really is brilliant. So you have that, and, which I really enjoy, you know, and then you, you find um, Jeff Ross and David Tell doing stuff. And yeah. Going, Geez, that, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I was t- talking earlier on about Jim Gaffigan, you know, who I'd always said, uh, pigeonholed as quite a, you know, straight-laced, ordinary comic. And I did a gig with him a couple of months ago in Dublin, and he blew me away. I said, this guy's amazing. And I started listening to his albums. Jeez, I'm, I'm in bed at night by myself, uh-huh. a little drunk, <laughs> <laughs> laughing my ass off at Jim Gaffigan. So creative. So, you know. I love the visual of that. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so I'm, I, I do, I get so excited about finding new types of stand-up, you know. And, it's a scavenger you know, hunt for ideas, right? It's, it's not, I don't think it's, 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 I'm not looking for ideas. I'm, I just enjoy it. I really I enjoy the intimacy of lying. When I was a kid, one of the things that used to drive my dad insane was I used to like to go into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So we, our, our little house was, um, you'd have a sitting room where the TV was, a little hall, a kitchen, and a half of the kitchen was a kind of like an, another little sitting room, but another, nothing ever happened in there. And that was downstairs, and then upstairs there was three bedrooms. Um, so one of the things I used to love to do was uh, we only had one radio and it was in the kitchen so I would go into the kitchen and I would turn off all the lights mm-hmm. and I'd lie on the floor listening to the radio I don't know why did that just yeah. and it freaked my dad out he'd open the door and the light would be off <laughs> he'd turn on what the fuck are you doing lying on the floor <laughs> So, <laughs> I, I think I still have that thing of, of lying down at night in dark places, listening to Jim or John or David Tell. Yeah. I just, I love it. I really love it, you know. Um, I've yet to unlock Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm aware of so many people who, who it says amazing. But it I, took me a long time. I've, I've, you know, I'd be much more attracted to the drama of Lenny Bruce and the way he used to orchestrate his stand-up and scenes and characters and, yeah. like, you know, live at the Palladium bit, which is about, I think it's about 20 minutes long. That's fucking genius, like, guys. It used to Brilliant. drive me crazy that, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no I'm done. Um, just the fact that I couldn't appreciate Richard like everybody else yeah. and all the other comics they are, hey man you like Richard Pryor and I'm starting out and yeah. I'm like eh, yeah, yeah. first I used to say nah I'm not into him and then they'd look at me like there was something wrong with me and maybe they yeah. shouldn't affiliate so then I go yeah 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 and I, I never I never could quite get into him because I mean in, a, in New York anyway when I was starting out it was almost like a rite of passage do you like Richard Pryor man are you cool yeah um, so I never got him for a long time and I think what, where I turned on that and I started appreciating him was just seeing his 
his vulnerability on stage. Yeah. I don't know that I ever really got into the jokes so okay. much. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I got into... Um, one thing, yeah. I, I interviewed George Carlin a bunch of oh, times. Wow. And uh, I said to him, you know, as you get older, having done stand-up your whole life, does anything hit you? Does anything surprise you about the, a new appreciation for, for what you're doing? Yeah. And he said, the silences. He says, I, I really appreciate the silences now. Wow. He said, I never used to be able to sit in the silence on stage. Yeah. And once I was able to get comfortable taking a nice silence and, then, and not worrying about that, that made me so happy. Okay. And I guess along the lines of that, I started looking for, when I watched stand-ups, things like the silences. Yeah. Little things that were like, um, what, what's really unique about this that I can appreciate? Rather than just like, I don't find it funny, you know? Yeah. And I guess with Richard, it was just the vulnerability, mo the moments of vulnerability, the moments where yeah. he stopped worrying about getting a laugh and, and, and let you into his heart a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I, yeah. I mean, that's as far as I've been able to come with Richard. But uh, yeah, I well, appreciate him so much for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah. Yeah. I'll ask you the question. What what has been interesting to you as you've gotten older as a comic? What what new appreciations do you have? Uh that however despondent and frustrated I guess with my ability to do it. I'm constantly inspired by the idea of stand up and I'm constantly inspired to fantasize about what's possible on stage and uh, my imagination n naturally returns to stand-up. So I might go through a phase of a few months of where I'm not enjoying it, where I feel stuck, where I'm forcing it, mm -hmm. I'm trying too hard. Um, I feel as if the stories, uh, there's too much of a distance between me now and the, who I was when I come up with the stories but I still have to perform those stories um, but I find that my, my imagination keeps returning to stand up that I might feel like that way for a couple of months I might feel that way after a show walk off stage and go what the fuck was that that was disheartening mm -hmm. um, and unenjoyable and the following morning naturally without effort I'd be dreaming about I wonder wouldn't it be cool to try a Jonathan Winters thing you know yeah. I wish I could be more like Samuel Beckett Jesus wasn't Spalding Gray amazing you know so I'm I'm and I think effortlessness is the important thing that I'm without trying keep returning to stand keep going back to how can how can I you know, Bob Dylan said this thing where uh, he was asked about songwriting and performing and he was just talking, he said, it's a matter of survival. You just do whatever you got to do in order to survive, to survive yourself mm -hmm. and to survive the business and to survive audiences and to try and leave the stage with some kind of <laughs> dignity. <laughs> and it's a constant... It's a, it's a constant engagement of how do I keep going with this thing? Yeah. How do I... It's not easy. So it's not... I'm not... 
this isn't some kind of self-congratulatory uh, position of, you know, I take this really seriously and I suffer. Yeah, that's how good I am. Uh, <laughs> it really is a thing of fucking hell. This is hard. Yeah. You know, um, but I, I can't stop myself. Mm-hmm. Listening to stand-ups and dreaming about it, I can't stop. I think that's a. I love the that beautiful sentiment, and I think it's a good moment for us to switch transition into this philosophy. Great, great. you feel ready to yeah, look, totally. look at it. Okay, great. All right, I hope you're enjoying the interview. I know I am. Uh, I kind of got a little Carlin-y, right? I know I am. I was listening to the interview on my way here. All right, I don't know. What do you know? I was listening to the interview, and I got really into this Tommy guy. I didn't, I don't know how I sound right. I'm very sleep deprived today. So, you know, maybe that's an excuse. Okay, here it is. BetterHelp. That's our sponsor. What are they? Let's say you have something interfering with your goals, with your happiness. It's preventing you from getting to where you need to be in life. BetterHelp is online counseling, and it's there for you. Connect with professional counselors in a safe, private online environment. It's so freaking convenient, I can't even tell you. You can now get help on your own time, at your own space, in your pajamas. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. You can be like, what are you wearing? I don't know if that's appropriate. Licensed professional counselors who are specializing in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share is strictly confidential. It's therapy, baby. They don't share your information. They're just there to help you. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason... You could request that they bring your counselor out and line them up against a wall. And sh- All right, no, you can't do that. If you're not happy with your counselor at any time, you could request a new one at any time for any reason. No additional charge. We've got, well, not we. I'm not really part of the BetterHelp uh, company, but uh, by extension because I'm doing the ad. We've got 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and it's available world wide four communication modes you could text you could chat you could phone and video start communicating in under 24 hours available on desktop mobile web android and ios apps schedule video and phone sessions generally they're done weekly but you could talk to your therapist about scheduling more financial aid is also available for those of you who qualify it's secure it's convenient it's professional and it's affordable it's not a crisis line What can I tell you? I know. I'll tell you the good news. For you, my listeners, you can get 10% off your first month. 10% off your first month. And that is, it's already an affordable option, but knock off that extra 10% for Modern Day Philosophers listeners. And you are moving in stride and you are getting through your issues. You are moving forward in life. Therapy is so important. I did it. Got me where I am today. And uh, where I am today is much better than where I was before. All right. Use the discount code MDP. 
So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash MDP. That's betterhelp.com slash MDP. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you will love. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash MDP. Now back to my talk with the wonderful Tommy Tiernan. Okay, so the guy that Alex picked for you is Albert Einstein. And he says what you have in common with him is at one point, Tommy had the Guinness World Record for the longest show, so I picked the philosopher who dealt with time. Is that right? You had the longest show? Sure, I established the record. Um, it didn't exist before, and I, I can tell you a brief story about it if you like. Yeah, I'd I, love um, to hear it. Yeah. I, got, I got stuck in a particular style of stand-up. Mm-hmm that I wanted to get out of and I couldn't think of a way out. So what I decided to do is I thought that if I, I thought if a gig never stopped, that I'd eventually talk my way into a new style. <laughs> so I did a show that lasted 36 hours and 15 minutes. Oh my God. I started at three o'clock on Good Friday uh-huh. and I went until just before dawn on Easter Sunday. So I did 36 hours, 15 minutes. 36 hours. Um, and the Guinness Book of Records, people came down and they said, yeah, they said, once you do over 24 hours, it's a new record, you know, so. Wow. Um, and then, so then it became a thing. And then a guy in Norway broke the record by four hours. And then another guy in Australia, I think, held the record. I don't know who owns it now. Probably some Indian. <laughs> <laughs> Did you keep any of the same audience members for the whole time? No, they changed every hour. Yeah. Uh, but at night, they did, they did three-hour shifts. <laughs> so I had an audience from 12 till 3, 3 till 6, 6 till 9. And then from 9, it was 9 to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12. And That's why. Did yeah. your theory work? Did you ch- It did, yeah. I, I did it at Easter time. Uh, and what happened was that I realized in October mm-hmm. that what I was hoping for had happened, that my style had softened. Yeah. And that I wasn't as kind of ranting as I used to be. What the so hell did you talk about for 36 hours? Did well, what I did was I, I got all the material I ever wrote uh-huh. and I just did it. So I had 22 hours worth of material. Wow. Um, Phenomenal. And I just did it and uh, I'd be wiser doing it again. You know, I also did a thing um, a few years ago where I totally improvised shows. So I went on a European tour uh-huh. with no prepared material, doing a 90-minute show each night of... It, it, it wasn't stand-up. It just became this kind of uh, howl of existential <laughs> truth-telling despair. Yeah. So I'm, always, I'm drawn to what it is can push me to the next... You know, and once you get an idea, it's very hard to get rid of it. Yeah. Once that bee is buzzing between your ears, the only way he comes out of your mouth <laughs> is if you just do it. You gotta, yeah. You know, so I, I do get these notions every now and again. Yeah. I have to try that. I have to try that. And usually it works, but not in the way that I can predict. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that, that's uh, yeah, I established that record. Yeah. That's wild. Mm. But, yeah. And you want to do it again, you said. I think, no, I think I'd be better at it if I did it again. I'm not, it, it's not bugging me the way the yeah. initial idea did. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see what the record is now, who holds it. Yeah. And I'll f- 
like to fucking smash it. <laughs> <laughs> like if it's about 44 hours, I'll do 90. <laughs> <laughs> and a week later, someone does 91. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's some statistic they say that, you know, once you set a record, uh, it immediately becomes uh, much more breakable because people get the uh, idea that they can do it. Yes, totally. Yeah. Um, which is amazing. Like, you know, I think, whew, I think somebody who ran the, 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 the fastest mile or mm. something, it hadn't happened any, or the, I don't remember what this exact thing, but then yeah. somebody broke it right yeah, away. Yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. And I always wondered if, it, if it's like there are these barriers, these invisible var barriers in the universe that once you break them open, it, that whole thing becomes easier, or if the barriers are in our minds. And uh, once we believe that something's possible, we're therefore much more um, able to do it. It's funny, you know, if you try and imagine all the things we haven't thought of yet. <laughs> <laughs> like my, my dad used to say to me, he says, uh, says, when he couldn't sleep at night, mm -hmm. he'd try and remember something that he'd never remembered before. <laughs> So that notion of yeah. you know, creating records is, yeah, yeah, you know, trying to, trying to think thoughts no one has ever thought before. It's, uh, I wonder if. Yeah. Anyway, all right, here's the synopsis on Albert Einstein. He says, Einstein thinks everything is predetermined. Okay, so this is already what we were just talking about. Even though it feels like we have free will, this feeds into his theory of relativity. Your perception of time is different based on your position in space. For example, he imagines a person standing beside a train and a person inside it. The train is between two trees that are simultaneously struck by lightning. Because of the train's motion, the person inside would see one tree hit before the other. The person outside would see the bolts simultaneously. Are you following this? Yeah, so yeah. So, we are governed by the laws of physics but cannot grasp them because of our subjective viewpoint. Even if it really feels like we have free will, we do not because this would contradict the chain of causality from the laws of physics. We know from perception of time that we are never getting the full picture of reality. Yeah, my dad once said to me, you know, says, uh, he was standing in the kitchen. I told him when I was a kid, I said, I want to be a philosopher. And he said to me, we're all philosophers, Tom. And I came into the kitchen one time and he said to me, am I moving through time or is time moving through me? You know, and no, no more than that paragraph, I wonder sometimes Living with a question is not the same thing as trying to come up with a verbal answer to it. So sometimes to live with a question without trying to figure it out. Uh, I came across this notion recently that our consciousness doesn't exist in our brains. Our brains exist in consciousness. So rather than consciousness being an individual 
uh, light, like a, like a lit match inside everybody's skull that's separate from everybody, other lit match. This guy was suggesting that consciousness is kind of like air. Mm. It's kind of like uh, a soup, you know? Mm-hmm. And we exist in consciousness. So that, uh, so to live with that, so rather than Einstein stuff about time and free will, uh-huh. it, uh, that seems to me, I'm not attracted to the question, to me it's, that seems like something smart to try and figure out. Mm-hmm. Because I'm much more attracted to the notion of contemplating that we exist in consciousness rather than the consciousness exists within us. Well, isn't that almost another way of saying God? If God is this larger consciousness that we all exist within? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, once you say the word God, you're, you're automatically declaring that you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Be- because none of us can, and I would, I would use the word God a lot, yeah. but none of us really know what that means. So, right. Um, but isn't that the great mystery of, of humanity is that we're all trying to figure out if it means or what it means? Sure. Or, yeah. But I suppose we can take sentences that give us comfort and sentences that annoy us. So, <laughs> so Einstein annoys me. <laughs> I don't want to have to figure out time stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you have time for it? <laughs> but the... So this guy that I, I was listening to recently who was talking about the, talking about the consciousness thing, mm-hmm. he was also talking about space, you know? And what is space? And he wasn't referring to the space beyond the planet. He was talking about the space between things, the space between our bodies. Mm-hmm. The space between here and the bar. Like, often we don't attribute anything to the space. We see an object and another object, and we think they're the only two things that exist. But he was suggesting, no, the space is what exists. The objects are just, you know, condensed if you, <laughs> the objects are merely condensed hard space. Right. <laughs> this is, this, that is congealed space. It sounds like the thesis for a Yoko Ono exhibit. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. <laughs> um, so, that, so that kind of, so philosophically speaking, that's the kind of thing that would in, interest me. I, sometimes I find, you know, you know that the Schrodinger's cat thing? Yeah. Like, that, I, that just... I, I, you know, you're, my, my brain just cannot, I get no enjoyment out of that. I don't <laughs> try to understand it, I, but just get, ah, Jesus. <laughs> the cat is alive and dead until you look at it. What the fuck? Like, it's just, it doesn't, mm-hmm. I guess our, we have aptitudes for different types of questions, I suppose, maybe, yeah. I don't know. Well, we'll read you a little bit off Wikipedia about Albert Einstein. I think we both know something about him, but maybe we'll learn something new here. 
Okay, Albert Einstein, he lived from March 14th, 1879 till April 18th, 1955. He was a German-born theoretical physicist who developed the theory of relativity, one of the two pillars of modern physics, along with quantum mechanics. His work is also known for its influence on the philosophy of science. He's best known to the general public for his mass energy equivalence formula, which is E equals mc squared, which has been dubbed the world's most famous equation. So I guess he has a record, too. Um, he received the 1921 Nobel Peace Prize, Nobel Prize in Physics for his service to theoretical physics and especially for his discovery of the law of photoelectric effect, a pivotal step in the development of quantum theory. Well, anyway. the, the quantum theory thing is um, interesting because, uh, you know, the, so the couple of the kind of supermarket cliches about quantum physics are, if you think you understand quantum physics, then you don't understand quantum physics. Right. Um, whatever can happen does happen. Um, and I, in terms of laws that are discovered like that, I would ignorantly suggest that no law is a given throughout the universe. So I think there are laws that work on Earth mm -hmm. that are contradicted in other parts of the multiverse. You know, like gravity, you mean? Gravity or even that, you know... E equals MC squared or, you know, whatever. There are, uh, there's a notion that if something exists, then, and I don't know how they make this jump, that its opposite also exists. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't know why you'd spend time <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, a, a great Irish philosopher by the name of John Moriarty um, said that all our knowing is vulnerable to further knowing. So no matter how we experience this as individuals, the way we look at the world when we're four, the way we look at it when we're 34 and 54. Right. I think the same could well be true of every single thing that we take to be a fact. And science is all, I mean, science is full of discoveries. So people say, well, you know, Obvious one, the world is flat, and then, oh, my God, it's round. Right. You know, so, but that happens all the time in science. So every scientific law is also untrue. Yeah. I like the way uh, your guy Mariotti put it. All, all, everything, all the knowing is vulnerable to further knowing. Yeah. Which is just a fancy way of saying, yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> you're going to find out some new shit that's going to, Change the way you see it. Well, it's not even just that you're wrong. It's just that... Uh, Don't get stuck in your thought because it, you, you, there's still new stuff that's It's not change. permanent. Right. And I know that's true. Yeah. I mean, even going back to our conversation about having a kid, Yeah. it's like one of the great 
mental transformations that I've made is going from somebody who never wants kids to somebody who is lukewarm about the idea yeah. to someone who's sitting across from you now excited about, like, yeah. when's this kid coming? Yeah, yeah. You know? And if I would have gone back to myself even seven years ago and said, in a short seven years, you're going to completely change the way you feel about sure. this, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have said, no, 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 that's not for me. Leonard Cohen has this great line, I don't trust my inner feelings, inner feelings come and go. <laughs> so, you know, that's always, we're, we're, we're taught so much about trusting your gut. Mm -hmm. um, and Leonard is suggesting here, hey, <laughs> your gut might feel different tomorrow. Yeah. You know, so these are all great questions. Um, questions that remove certainty. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think that's the beauty of life is that, you know, if you're open to, to uh, reevaluating everything, your life can change in magical kind of ways because I think only when you're stuck in a rigid thought process where you're like, this is the way it is. Sure. Not interested in hearing anything else. Yeah. Um, it's so limiting and uh, suffocating to your own mind. Yeah. It's a process you would imagine of just letting go, letting go of everything you thought you knew, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, uh, I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll obnoxiously quote myself um, from the show that I'm doing mm. here at the Fringe I talk about it, this whole struggle with my weight and th this great breakthrough I had which was to, uh, to stop thinking a certain way mm -hmm. um, and the, the greatest gift I ever gave myself was to free myself from the prison of my own mind mm. and I, I think that that is possibly the great gift of humanity is um, th that we have the ability to give each other and to give ourselves mm -hmm. is the freedom to think differently. You know, I, I talked about the scavenger hunt of ideas with uh, stand-up and you said, suggested it's a different idea uh, of why you're listening to it. And okay, I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah. But uh, I think there's also an element of, of that, that natural search that we have as people um, for new information, for a new perspective. Sure. And... Without that, you know, it, it all becomes stale, like what you were saying about uh, going on stage and feeling, you know, I'm still recounting the same stories yeah. and this and that. And uh, the only way to break that staleness is to see the world differently, right? Or to go on an adventure. Yeah. Uh, and to have the wherewithal uh, to be able to initiate that adventure, mm -hmm. you know, and to realize the freedom you have on stage. And that the audience, uh, that you can't really be bound by the audience's expectations. The audience's expectations are a fiction. Mm -hmm. They're not real. They're, you're projecting that onto them. Uh, and there's more, much more freedom than you imagine. I think it's almost sad uh, in our times that I think people are kind of bowing to audience expectation in comedy. I was uh, doing a little Wikipedia on you before mm. I came over, and I saw that it said uh, Tommy controversy, mm. and I read and it was just comedy stuff that you'd said that people took. You but know, out of con I mean, the, the, yeah, we all know now yeah. that uh, the radical importance mm -hmm. of context—you can't take stuff out of context, right? And people who do take it out of context have another agenda. Yeah, you know uh, that. 
but they will use you. Uh, they will uh, abuse you mm-hmm. uh, because people, because we have the tendency to objectify others, mm-hmm. and you just become a kind of a pawn in a game they're trying to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, my sense is that that. M- more or less that there is that wisdom now that wasn't there 10 years ago in stand-up. Um, you know, it's funny, the, do you remember the Michael Richards thing where, where the, yeah. the, in the comedy club? And, uh, you know, all hatred is it's vile and it's, um, it's kind of, you can sense it in a performer. You know, somebody can undermine things and that's playful and that's good fun. You know, if you watch David Tell and Jeffrey Ross doing the bump and mics thing mm-hmm. in the comedy club in New York, they have great fun with race. You know, they, they really do. And they, because, but people laugh because they, they can sense the mischief in it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I did feel uncomfortable with the, the kind of crucifixion of that guy. Michael Richards? Yeah, that took place. I just felt... Something not right here. There's just um, uh, there's something, and I'm not saying that he wasn't full of hatred or that you know he wasn't there was an, that, an, that an ugliness wasn't exposed. I just thought some of the commentary around it became a little too. We have to have the freedom to play. We have to yeah. have the freedom to take chances. Um, so I'm so I'm, I'm not specifically talking about what. Michael Richards said, but I'm talking about some of the kind of the talk around it. Yeah. To yeah. me, it was just, hang on a minute here, guys. We have to, uh, we have to remember that we're allowed to be reckless. Right. Um, and the context is everything, you know. Uh, so, yeah. I, I, re- I, I relate to what you're saying. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein recently was mm. either murdered or suicide, mm. whatever. And I went online, and everything on Facebook was, yeah, burning hell, Epstein, and this and that. And I kind of felt like it was a bloodthirsty mob, sure, you know? Yeah, and, I, is, and, yeah. and I understand the guy was a monster. And so I wrote, this is just how I felt in the moment. I posted up, uh, I said, you know, it seems like he was obviously a monster, but still it's not so great to rejoice in, in anybody's demise, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah still somebody's you know somebody's son somebody's Mm -hmm. i said just you know good you know that he's not going to hurt anybody in that respect but maybe take a moment of just realizing a a human died you know yeah yeah. that's how i felt in that moment oh they ripped me apart so much so i took down the status because a, a friend of mine a comedian in los angeles called me up he said listen it's not a mountain worth dying on sure for a pedophile take down the status yeah yeah because yeah. people didn't see the nuance in what I was trying to say or, or anything. They were just like, oh, he's, he's on board with yeah. pedophiles, you know? So uh, it's, it's sad because, I, I mean, that's what I think of when I hear what, what you're expressing about Michael Richards is that it's all, almost becoming a bloodthirsty culture where people are, are so excited to take somebody down that you're like, well, what about for the folks who just want to play a little bit, you know? But it's funny, I, I suppose, I mean, I'm not... I suppose when you see 
guys like um, when I when I watch say say Dave Chappelle or uh, now I come from I come from a completely different culture where the attitude to race is different in that it's not as tense in Ireland as it is in America mm-hmm. or as it is in the UK. So we have a much more I think it goes back to that peasant thing um, of we're all on the same level here and one of the ways we survive is by laughing at one another. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really visible when I watch people like David Tell from my perspective when I watch David Tell and Jeffrey Ross doing the bump and mic thing. They're having fun with race. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to be now I know that you know the two Jews like you know <laughs> Um, so they're having fun with it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it seems liberating. It seems that while they're playing, the burden of racial tension is kind of lifted. Yeah. Uh, sometimes when I watch Dave, it's like it's increased. Sometimes I feel the racial, the racial tension thing is increased when I watch Dave. Some of the, some of the bit I was watching Chappelle, most. Chappelle, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Now to tell. Yeah, Dave Chappelle, yeah. Yeah. Um, and each of us can only be true to our instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I fi- find Dave Chappelle kind of fascinating, I do notice from my perspective, which is a kind of a peasant from the west of Ireland, like I just find, ah, it, there's not much play in that, you know. Uh, I'd find more play in maybe Chris Rock's stuff about... Mm-hmm race um, but again you know I suppose I'm then I heard recently in an interview that Chris Rock said he regrets doing playful race stuff which I thought was yeah I thought that was a little sad I think it's because tensions have built so much in America with race now that there must have been some pressure on him to to get to that point sure you know? whereas I thought I thought it was good what uh, what he did again i'm talk we're talking as two white guys so i understand that there's a whole different perspective of course but then um, but, and, it's, and it's not up to us to tell anybody what to say but we're still entitled to our reactions to it right you know i remember you know that there are some phenomenal richard pryor stuff um about going back to africa uh and his his perspective on stuff was always it's enjoyable for whatever reason um uh, and I, and I 100% feel out of my depth talking about this stuff. But I, I just, I'm just noticing my reactions to things, you know. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I guess anytime things constrict, mm-hmm. there's a lack of reckless playfulness. Right, and the and the obvious enemy of comedy is seriousness. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because we've gotten to this point where comedy is straddling that line between I want to make a serious point and I want to do comedy, and sometimes the serious overtakes the comedy. Well, sometimes you get people, you get stand-ups expressing an opinion Mm -hmm. that is utterly humorless, and the crowd are clapping. 
and you're waiting for the joke. Right. Now, these people don't, ha- these people don't have to tell jokes. Mm-hmm. But you're kind of going a whole hour of it. <laughs> really? Where's the joke, dude? Yeah. You know, or, yeah. or lady, where's the, where's the joke? Yeah. You know, um, and uh, that's why it's such a relief when, again, going back to Attell. Jeffrey Ross and yeah. Dave Attell, I just, I just think what they're doing is, is fun, you know. Um, anyway, anyway, I'm, I'm, I know I'll, I'll, I automatically feel as if I'll regret having said all this. Yeah, me too. I feel like <laughs> I regret it too, which is part of the problem. I mean, because mm. if you can't process the thoughts even, yeah. th- then, uh, you know, you become uh, a, a prisoner of societal th- groupthink, you know. I suppose it's just, it's just noticing. Yeah. Noticing different things um, and how a lot of stand-ups and a lot of audiences just seem to be interested in confirmation of their prejudices yeah. rather than having fun. Yeah. You know, and I guess there's, there's obviously an appetite for that. It's not what attracts me to stand-up. What attracts me is mischief. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, in terms of comics, do they get more mischievous than Dave Chappelle. I mean, you know, he's a joker. Yeah. You know, uh, but um, yeah, it's, it's, um, he has a mischievous smile, Chappelle, yeah. you know? Nothing definite. Yeah. That should be the name of my next show. Nothing definite. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here I have a paragraph. It's a very short one from Albert Einstein. Would you do the honors of reading it? It starts uh, with the word I. I claim credit for nothing. Everything is determined the beginning as well as the end, by forces over which we have no control. It is determined for the insect as well as for the star, human beings, vegetable or cosmic dust. We all dance to a mysterious tune, intoned in the distance by an invisible player. Now, just see, now what he's suggesting there is we're dancing to an invisible tune. So... He can't hear the tune. Albert Einstein cannot hear the tune that we're dancing to. He cannot hear the tune and he cannot hear the musician. He can't see the musician. But he is suggesting that the tune and the musician exist even though he has no way of identifying them. And he's saying that this dancing is compulsive and obligatory right. and we have no choice involuntary dancers yeah but you know if I said to you there's a can you hear that invisible can you know behold the invisible soundless music <laughs> it's like that might be a fantasy of Albert's that we are all held mm-hmm. in the something that... Now, there's a, I have a great interest in kind of some Christian mysticism as well, which would suggest that the ultimate reality, whatever that is, uh, it cannot be apprehended by the, sen- by the senses. Mm-hmm. So God, for the want of a better word, cannot be felt, cannot be touched, cannot be tasted, cannot be seen, cannot be smelt cannot be apprehended by any of the senses. So it's beyond the senses. Mm-hmm. 
which is hard for us to get around. Like, how can we experience it if it's beyond the senses? The Christian mystics would suggest that that's what happens after death. It is that a, a realm beyond the human sensorium. And maybe Albert Einstein is suggesting the same thing, that it's relax. You know, we are here in our physical bodies and isn't yeah. it fantastic to be able to feel heat and cold and sugar and whiskey and kissing and football and fresh air and rain. Yeah, good list. Right, isn't it fantastic? <laughs> uh, but beyond that, there is an experience that cannot be described. So maybe, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I was kind of skimming ahead on this um, Wikipedia, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just think this might be kind of relevant. It says, in 1933, while Einstein was visiting the United States, Adolf Hitler came to power. Because of his Jewish background, Einstein did not return to Germany. He settled in the United States and became an American citizen in 1940. On the eve of World War II, he endorsed a letter to President Franklin D. Roosevelt, alerting him to the potential development of an extremely powerful bomb of a new type and recommending that the U.S. begin similar research. This eventually led to the Manhattan Project. Einstein supported the Allies, but he generally denounced the idea of using nuclear fission as a weapon. Uh, so anyway, I just think to myself, if his family were all murdered in the Holocaust mm -hmm. and he escaped it, mm -hmm. there might be some feeling of how to process that and you say, well, it was all predetermined, you know, that I would live. And then on the flip side of that coin, that so many people died from an idea of his, how do you process that? You say, well, this was, this was bigger than me. This bomb was going to come around with or without me. These people were going to die. Yeah, but there might be, all, you know, in, just in terms of the time thing, there might be uh, a consequence of making the bomb that will prove beneficial in a hundred years time. There might be something, uh, some little sequence uh, of molecular reaction mm -hmm. that came about through the invention of the bomb, mm -hmm. but actually can benefit us, in, uh, that we just haven't seen it just yet, that because the, the bomb was a horror, mm -hmm. you know, um, but maybe there's something further down the line. And also, you know, the whole notion of predetermined, we perhaps need to realize that just because it's predetermined doesn't mean it's positive. There could be predetermined suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not... And we are all open to fate and we have no idea what's around the corner for us. So... And you can't... predetermine the predetermined. Mm -hmm. I as an individual, you know, although I did go to an astrologer once who told me when I was going to die. Yeah. You know these big charts you can do yeah. where they, you tell them where you were born at what time and they do this. And she told me the whole thing of my life and I said to her, well, you know so much, can you tell me when I'm going to die? Uh-huh. And she said, I can. And she unfurled the last bit of the chart and she told me what age I was going to die and what I was going to die from. Now, I haven't reached that age yet. Wow. But uh, that type of... That type of predetermination is a folly. It's a, ga it's a game. Yeah. You what, know? Did, what did she say you're going to die from? She said, I'm going to die. I can't tell you. 
I can't. Really? I'll, yeah. I'd fe- it feels, it would feel gratuitous of me just to, to say it. <laughs> you know, wait and see. Um, <laughs> now we'll never know if she was right, you know? No, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll let you know. Don't worry. I'll let you know. Uh, how long, have, how long have you got, according I've, to I've her? got a while. I don't have a... Uh, I, whatever I need to do, I should do it fairly quickly. Uh, <laughs> but no panic, just yet. Uh-huh. But just, I should pick up the pace a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, so... I once met a psychic in Joe Franklin. Do you remember... Do you know who Joe Franklin was? He was a broadcaster in the 1950s. He was very big in, in New York. And uh, he, he, he had this crazy office in Times Square that was like, you know, he had col- collections and hoarded, he hoarded stuff. He had mm. stuff from everything he ever, every piece of paper he was ever given in his life was in that office. And he always had all these, like, people that you'd imagine would be like sitting around a table in a Woody Allen movie, like these strange, like, different mm. characters. And there was a psychic there once. And uh, I asked the guy, I said, am I going to be successful as a comedian? And he said, you're going to be wildly successful as a comedian. I said, like, 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 what does that mean? He said, well, you're going to be more successful than, I don't know, he named some big comedian, I forget who. I said, well, okay, how about, how, where will I fare? I was just having fun with it. Mm. I said, where will I fare in comparison to Rodney Dangerfield? And he said, Who's Rodney Dangerfield? I said, all right, the guy's full of it. He doesn't even yeah, know Rodney. Yeah. He can't tell me where I'm going to be. Yeah, I, yeah. I said, well, he was very famous, and he, he, he did this, and he says, oh, you're going to be much bigger than Rodney Dangerfield. But you don't even know Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't really believe in no, that. No, I think he's trying to make you feel good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also met a, I met a, um, uh, a medium mm. there from, from England one time at mm. Joe Franklin's office. He said he could talk to the dead. And I asked him to get my great-grandmother's banana bread recipe for me because I had never had one like it. And I thought if I could go home and make it and it tasted the same, then I'd know that he was for real because I'd, I'd have that sense memory. Yeah. And here's the impressive thing. Without looking at anything, he, he gave me a banana bread recipe. I don't, you know, he said, uh, he says, I'm contacting her right now, Anna. How are you? And I thought to myself, if this is real, what a jerk I am to bother her in the afterlife for a banana bread recipe. But, but he says, okay, what's that you say, love? Two bananas, three, bana- three bananas, and I wrote it all down. Yeah. Vanilla, uh-huh, this, that. He gives me a whole list to make a banana bread. And I was so excited. I'm like, I'm going to know if this is real or not. Yeah. And I, I rush back to Brooklyn, and I go right to Seatown, which was the supermarket there, and I go in my pocket to get the paper, and it's gone. And I went and I retraced all my steps. I took the subway back to the city. I went no right way. back to Joe Franklin's office. And I couldn't find the paper. And I get there and, and Joe's there. And I said, where's the medium who was here? The British guy. And he's already like in his 80s. And he goes, I don't know who comes in or out of here. I never found out. Never found out that guy. Wow. Yeah. Never found out the paper. He couldn't tell me if that guy ever existed. If the guy was there, his name, nothing. Never got it. Always kind of left me wondering. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But I was always impressed that either way, the guy listed off enough ingredients that you probably could make a banana bread. Anyway, um, we have three quotes to round off, off the show here. The ordinary human being does not live long enough to draw any substantial benefit from his own experience. Wow. Well, uh, but the experience is still worthwhile. Yeah. 
But it is interesting how we were talking about you gain new perspectives and new perspectives. Maybe you finally figure out something and you're dead. Yeah. You're like, ah, I finally get it now. And you're gone. Bang. All right, next one. I never think of the future. It comes soon enough. I like that one. Yeah. A notion I have is that uh, the past and the future are both acts of imagination. Um, well, in the sense that, uh, come back to that Bob Dylan quote, reality always has too many heads. Every memory is, to remember something is to engage in an instinctive selection of narrative. So you're remembering something, you're imposing a story on something. If you give it at any moment in time, there are 47 billion, billion, billion things happening at once. So to talk of a definite past mm -hmm. is impossible. To talk of a definite future is impossible. To talk of a definite present is impossible. So what we do is we just, we come up with a story about what happened. We imagine a story that might happen and they infect the present that is happening. So we're kind of like fish swimming in the great imagination. That's what we're doing. We're just swimming in stories. Yeah. The story of then, the story of now, and the story of what is to happen. It's all so... And it's instinctive. We can't help it. Right. We're story-making fish. Yeah. <laughs> making fish all right here's the last quote i you want me to read it? i believe that whatever we do has its causality it is good however that we cannot see it i agree with that i mean i i would hate to see all this stuff that i've you know caused involuntarily sure but you know it won't always be good I feel like it will almost never be good. Yeah, right? there's suffering, you know, yeah. so... Um, yeah, there's suffering. Imagine if you could see how all your actions affect other people. I mean, I mean, maybe it would be good. A lot of it would be good, maybe, right? But... Yeah, again, there's, so. there's too many reactions. There's, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, there could be a lot of ego involved in that to see how my, you know, I wonder how I affect other people. Like, other people have enough to be doing yeah. that's been affected by me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, especially somebody like you who's, uh, who you affect, I imagine, at times thousands of people at once, right? But, well, uh, I mean... But the same way the audience affect me. You know, so if I'm telling a show, uh, doing a show and there's a hundred people there, you know the look on that woman's face in the second row, mm -hmm. that affects me in ways that she's not predicting or controlling. So, right. And it's almost the way that she's affecting me is kind of none of her business. <laughs> you know? So yeah. the way I'm affecting people is, in a sense, none of my business. You just, yeah. you know, you try to do no harm. And whatever happens after that is... Um, Wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing that always amazes me is if you think about the ripple effect that mm. we cause, right, with our actions, 
and you think about the billions of people in the world constantly causing all these ripples. Sure. It's amazing how calm everything is, you know? It's amazing that every moment isn't chaos. Like, you're going to walk outside and it's fairly calm. You can walk down the block. It's pretty quiet. Yeah. You know? There's a necessary fog that protects us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for oh, doing Danny, this. It's been a, a, a real pleasure. So uh, thanks for talking to me. Really wonderful. show for today i hope you enjoyed it uh i am so grateful to tommy Tiernan for doing the show thanks tommy i don't know if you'll ever hear this but i assume not because nobody ever listens to their own interviews uh not too many people do anyway but if you're one of those who do and you happen to hear this mad respect for you tommy mad respect and uh thanks for doing my podcast thanks for doing my wee little podcast here in america okay as for you folks tuning in, hope you check out betterhelp.com MDP. Get 10% off your first month. Get matched with a counselor. Sort through your problems. Have a baby. Be happy like me. And, uh, you know, it's pretty good. I got to tell you. For a guy who suffered from depression for a very long time, and it's not, you know, it's always trying to creep back in, but it's, it's a nice change of pace having a smiling, laughing, cute little baby around really is a blessing. All right. By the way, want to help out a guy who just had a baby? Hmm? New dad? Could use a little uh, support. The show. Be part of the movement. Go to mdp.net and donate. Donate to the show. Support the show. Click on that button and send over a little loot if you can, if you have it. If not, and even if so, go to iTunes where you can leave a nice comment, and a five-star rating. And guess what? I will read it on the show. You're like, what? That's phenomenal. You would actually read something I wrote on your wall on iTunes on the show. Yes, I would. Much like I'm about to read this nice one that came in on January 20th. January 20th, 2020. The first, and so far only, Nice five-star review on the iTunes page. It says, very entertaining, bam, five stars by Destiny57. I was looking for a podcast that would entertain me at work. I work alone most of the time, so it can become pretty boring. I came across this podcast, and I love it. I love the deep conversations and the imagination of comedians to make me laugh at the same time. I also like how it's long episode, because when you're at work, long episode makes a short day. Wonderful job. P.S. Congrats on the baby. Thank you so much, Destiny57. And uh, the baby thanks you too. All right, everybody. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in to a Modern Day Philosophers. I've been Daniel Lobel. I hope to continue to be him. And I hope you guys have a wonderful, you know, 
set amount of time between episodes <laughs> until the next one comes out. Take it easy, everybody, and keep telling people about the show. If you haven't been telling them, uh, start telling them. Post it up. Share the news. Take it easy. Adios. Shalom. Bye-bye. Au revoir.